Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. It's time for Bent News. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And when you need to know... Time for a Bent News special report. Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp inside the saucer full of secrets tour following this week's news updates. Yeah, you get to hear a little bit of our wild conversation with those cats, and there are a lot of laughs to be had. Those guys are exceptional musicians and extremely funny, funny people. It was a blast chatting with them. But first, the news. Ozzy Osbourne releasing patient number nine after that Thursday night football thing. And guess what? It led to his highest debut ever at number two in the UK and number one in the United States. I'm surprised with his history with the UK that this is his first ever hit number two because he did some pretty incredible solo work in the 80s that I thought would have hit number one right away. And that's not all, man. Andrew Watt, who produced the album, says there are more tracks that they recorded with Taylor Hawkins playing on drums and they will be released at some point. That's really exciting because that dude was an exceptional drummer and boy is he missed. He is so missed. It's a funny thing. They've moved back to UK, Ozzy and Sharon, and now they can hold up two fingers and say, we're number two. (laughs) This one hit our dashboard this week and we immediately went, what? Daniel Lenoir has announced that he's got a new album. The title of it, Player Piano, gives a look inside. The first track that is being released is called My All, which he says he wrote for his little brother who passed away, and he credits having learned the piano part on the song from Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. Pretty impressive. Yeah, the story gets better. Tyler was at his house playing an old upright, and that's the style of player piano. Real sad news, though. Andrew Woolfork from Earth, Wind, and Fire has passed. Got word this week. Earth, Wind, and Fire, a band that I listened to a lot as a child growing up, and the horn section always stood out. His sax, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Earth, Wind, and Fire singer Philip Bailey spoke that he had been ill for a while after the effects of a debilitating stroke. Dateline, Bent News, Gene Simmons says he doesn't have any friends. Sad. Having addressed that, Marcus, time for a new release update. Out now, Cage, the new EP from Billy Idol. Bush's The Art of Survival will be dropping on the 4th of October. On the 12th, new stuff from Alter Bridge, Pawns and Kings. And on the 14th, a very Backstreet Christmas. I made you say that. I know I you did. I you say those words. Come on. I know you did. <laughs> and also, the Red Hot Chili Peppers Return of the Dream Canteen will be dropping on the same day as the Very Backstreet Christmas. This Dream Canteen is kind of the continuation of Unlimited Love, and it's a double album, so the flow is real in the Chili Peppers camp. Also, out on the 14th, Todd Rundgren's Space Force. I really enjoyed our follow-up to our conversation with Nick Mason about Saucer Full of Secrets, and here's our interview with Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp. 
It's so good to have you fellas with us here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Ray and Marcus talking with Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp. You guys are fellow podcasters. How much of a priority can podcasting be when you're on the road, though? It can be quite grueling, but it's quite nice when you're settled into your groove on the road to have something to do, you know, having to swat. It's a nice thing to have to research because, you know, most of the people we speak to are people we really want to talk to, we either know about or just enjoy finding more out about. Although I do get very stressed. How about you, Gary? Do you get stressed? Yeah, I know. I think it's the it's finding the time to do the the the, um, the research. You know, even though that often when we know their music, I think it's important. And we don't really do a sort of question and answer podcast it's much more of a kind of chat with three musicians as it were but um it's good to know everything where you want to guide the conversation as you know your experience but it's right what guy says you know it stops me crying endlessly in my room <laughs> it means you're great for a pub quiz. what what is annoying there is that annoying aspect of it is that like 80 percent of the research you do doesn't get used and yes. then you forget it so it's really annoying wasting brain space and death clearing the uh, buffer in the mental computer. Exactly. Right? Yes. Now, why is this the imbalanced history of rock and roll? <laughs> You're going to find out in a few minutes. You haven't figured it out already. Hey, you know, uh, we were talking to Nick, and guy, he was talking to us about how you kind of got into a conversation with Lee, and that kind of led to him thinking that it would be a good thing to do the Saucerful Project. How did that conversation between you and Lee Harris go? The thing with Lee came because Lee had moved to France. I've known Lee for years years and years he was a sort of beloved character around Soho we knew loads of people in common and then in fact I played with the Blockheads a few times thanks to him I got to depth for the Blockheads you know one of my absolute heroes Norman Watroy on the bass and when I was on tour with David Gilmore in 2015 we went and played I can't remember which way around it was it was Nimes or Orange and he came to see us and that got him went home listening to a lot of Pink Floyd and sort of learning all his licks again and then we came back to play Orange or Nimes delete where applicable and he just said I've just had this idea of you know what about getting Nick out to do all the old stuff and I said that's a great idea it's a brilliant brilliant idea it's a no brainer but he'll never go for it he won't go for it and then the sort of email being pestered me and I said, all right, write it up properly and I'll send it to him. I sent it to him and I thought, he's going to say no, but it might be a nice lunch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not nice. So, yes. so I then I sort of sent it to Nick and Nick, it peaked as interesting. So, well, that does sound interesting. And lo and behold, there was a nice, actually, there wasn't a nice lunch. They actually met and I got held up in traffic. By the time I got to Nick's office, apart from Gary, I think they sort of picked who was going to be in the band. Actually, no, that's not, that's a lie, actually. I think Lee made He that. said it kind of came together all on its own the way yeah. it came together immediately I mean no no one in this band is the second choice put it that way how did I end up in it because of me and Gary and I are always desperately trying to find things to do together because unlike our on screen personas we actually like each other um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'd known I'd known I'd, I'd known Nick about 20 20 something years as well and yeah. uh, as, me. socially through very me. well through you originally yeah okay my entire life is through you <laughs> <laughs> and uh <laughs> And so, um, oh, they and, are you know, perfect podcast partners, Marcus. Look at this. They're completing each other's sentences and everything. I seem to. <laughs> so I, anyway, I seem to be one of the choices. So, you know, I was very excited about it. The idea of because I think the thing is with playing. Who this, asked you? Did I ask you? Was, uh, what, you? Did I ask or did Nick ask you? I, you asked me. You, you asked me. Okay. You said it would be ready. <laughs> and then uh, and then we met one day in a rehearsal room and, and just as a tryout. And um, it all came together pretty fast. I think, you know, the other thing that's interesting is because Guy and I share the vocals. We haven't had one dispute about 
about who was doing what vocal, have we? That all seemed to fall into place too, didn't it? In the set, you know. Yeah, I no, I just say, no, you're right, Gary, you should sing this one and then go and sob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a thing where it's quite obvious, it seems to me. Yeah. Like, I get, if it's Rick, then as a rule, I do it. If it's Sid or David, then you do it. I've got the dark, bitter voice. Ah, the dark, bitter voice. Ooh. <laughs> oh, no, no. But- Good cop, bad cop. That's what made Pink Floyd work, wasn't it? And, and the Beatles as well. Yeah, absolutely. Although it's funny, isn't it, with early Beatles records, some of them, it's hard to tell which which one's John and which one's Paul, which seems absurd now. That means it's right. George. Back then. <laughs> Back then it was absurd. <laughs> That's so funny. Now, this question is for both of you guys. When you started rehearsing and developing the show, what Pink Floyd song or songs were the most challenging for you to learn and play? And what did you do to get over that hump that was holding you back or keeping you from playing the songs the way you wanted to play? Um, to be honest, nothing was really, really challenging apart from sort of some of the long bits. I mean, as a bass player, not really anything, but except for the, the Sid songs, because they're all, they're, they're not, they're just not straightforward. They're kind of all over the place. In what way? <laughs> well, they're really odd time signatures that Nick just sails through, but we you know uh, they, they take a bit of learning. Yeah, I think obviously there's. I think when we first decided to, I'm do not that, playing I'm like, guitar solos. To be fair, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can. I might as well just say it right now. And Echoes was quite yeah. daunting, you know, when we took on the concept of doing Echoes because it really is the track that bridges the gap between old Floyd and new Floyd. And there's something rather precious, and people have a certain reverence for the track. And, and I, you know, I think it's fair to say that there was the Pink Floyd family were, you know, a little bit nervous that we wouldn't do it justice. And I think we have gone beyond doing, you know, we've done this track justice. So I think, you know, the focus, obviously, there's guitar stuff in there that people know. We went back to the metal album and we, we took that as being our template, really. And once it came together, it came together quite easily. It's sections and it's beautiful to play. I mean, it's my favorite part of the set every night and the vocal works really well between me yeah. and Guy. I that was actually the most daunting thing for me. That was the one thing I was worried about because it's the first great Pink Floyd vocal that we've mm. been up against. And obviously I've played it before with David and Rick, but this is very, very different to that in that where the emphasis is, you know, very much just like there's a, you know, finding out how crucial Nick is to the thing, that whole beautiful big middle section. So yes, you, brought, I, you know, Echoes is the opposite. I just didn't want to say. You brought up <laughs> Gilmore a couple times. When you had that opening slot, how did that work out that got you into the Pink Floyd circle, so to speak? Because that was kind of your entry point to this whole world from the inside. That was my entry point. Yeah, basically, it's um, practically everything in my life was shaped by this one Brian Ferry record I played on, Bet Noir, which is, I, I met so many people. That's kind of where I got to know David because he was playing guitar on that. So I also got to know Patrick Mennett and Chester Kamen. And so, you know, it's, it's actually the most important point in my career was that album. So that's how I knew Brian. I mean, how I knew David. Also, because I was playing for this band, Dream Academy, who David had been producing. So I was just sort of slightly on his radar. By no means first choice. It was meant to be Tony Levin doing the tour. And then I, mean, I was probably about fifth or sixth on the list so what got you the gig in the end what do you think it was what do you think it was apart from your wonderful charm (laughs) well it was actually that because I never when I went to do the audition for a start there was another bass player in there I thought oh great when I went to get the bass out David said I don't do that I know you can do that and all I had to do was (laughs) sing Run Like Hell 
and I'd actually been up all night. I was in a terrible state. And I was like, what? And, and, and actually, if I'd been rested <laughs> and sort of straightforward, then it, that would have been terrible. But it was actually the brilliant thing to do because it involved, that's what I was worried about. I needed someone to sing Half of Run Like Hell. And it was fantastic. I was so pleased to get a chance to do that. I basically sang it in the style of Joe Strummer at Glastonbury without a microphone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, I did it. Well, apparently, I did it so well that David asked me back. And apparently, he told someone later because he said he couldn't believe he thought it must be a fluke. He said, I'm sure he did it that once but that's not what we can do and Nick was there this time when I went into the studio so I got the bass out I said no, no I don't need to get that out <laughs> cool. Why? And, and he said well I just want you to sing Run Like Hell again now here's the thing is you got to remember I was as far as I know I was absolutely terrified the idea of being cocky or sort of or in any way sort of louche is absurd I was absolutely terrified so this was nerves that made me say it I just said why I've already he said I saw you sing Run Like Hell again and I said why I've already done it <laughs> and apparently David was so shocked at my arrogance that uh, he just went oh sorry it'll do no, I, I actually heard you oh, sang it wow. so well that David phoned Joe Strummer and asked him if he could play bass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Gary, I've got a question for you because you yeah. had a whole career in acting and film and television and stuff, right? I had? Is that in the past tense? What's going on? <laughs> well, you have. You have. But you know what I mean? Have you been speaking to his agent? You've been, you've been pulled away from it. You're still a dashing man. You're kind of a dashing figure, you know? And uh, is this like a holiday for you to get out and play with the boys and play music that you love and have fun? Uh, or is it uh, really yeah, what my, you my, want to do now? Look, my whole life has been a holiday, it has to be said. You know, I mean, it's, it's to be in this business and to do well in it, we're all pretty lucky. I take everything I do really, really seriously. But I find what happens when, yes. I, when I'm putting a head on, you know, if I'm going to be an actor on stage, that's taken very seriously. And I can't imagine being anyone else. Right now, I can't imagine being out of this band. This has given me an opportunity to express myself as a guitar player and as a singer. No other job has ever given me. And I've enjoyed all of the dangers of that and all of the nightmares that it's given me to get onto stage and to start doing stuff that I've waited 50 years to do. You mentioned earlier that one of the things that you like about the podcasting is that you get to do a lot of research and learning. And as a professional musician... No, it's very like that. <laughs> okay, you have do to do it as part of the uh, routine or as part of the work. But... You You've also learned as musicians and playing the Pink Floyd on tour and doing the Saucer Full of Secrets. What have you both learned as musicians and about yourself as musicians along this journey? Can I go first, Guy? Yeah, yeah, please. I've learned that you can be on the road and not get stressed about other people and have a really nice time with a band because I don't think I've experienced as much convivial camaraderie as we have in this group That's um, cool. before, ever. You know, there's this sort of slight myth about Spandau all being mates. And of course, there wasn't. It was tough at times. And the get back, when we got back together, it was extremely tough. I absolutely love being in this group. I think I love the banter that goes on on the bus. And so I've, I've learned it's possible to do a job and have a great time. Quick question. On the bus, is there a fart fine? Like if somebody cuts a mean one, do they have to pay a fine? <laughs> no. Okay. There is now. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, let me be the first to contribute. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. It's on the young buses. The young rockers are yeah, doing yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're all farting is just a fact of life for us. It's, but yeah, it's it's more it's more waiting for someone to come out of the toilet, you know, so he can get in. There you go. Oh. Is the no number two rule in effect on the two bus? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 That's it's quite universal. Funny. I remember we're getting getting the spec for a bus for the bus for Europe, which was and it looked it's not the bus we got in the end. And it looked like some super duper new thing with a totally sealed loo and all functioning plumbing and everything. And I got sort of and I sort of I replied to our production manager, Pat, I went, Does this mean just that? And he just came back. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to being part of the saucer full of secrets, they are also the rock on tours. You can find their podcast pretty much everywhere, but I know I listen on Apple and uh, they're a great fun yes. listen on their podcast so check them out and check them out on tour with nick mason and the band nick so mason cool source of the secrets coming yes. your way yes we're gonna be yep we mean business show business outstanding <laughs> we can finish now because otherwise he'll start to tap uh, oh, river dance right. do river dance man wait a minute let me work on awesome this time. we got we video tap Going back to your early days as children, I was wondering if you remember the first vinyl you ever bought or were gifted. Yeah, and what okay, were they? Okay, on that one. So the first one, I, the single I ever bought was 1970. I was 10, and I bought Eight Man by The Kinks. I think I'm sophisticated because I'm never my life like a good homo sapien. But all around me, everybody's multiplying and they're walking around like flies, man. So I'm no better than the animals sitting in the cages in the zoo, man. Cause compared to the flowers and the birds and the trees, I am an ape, man. Yeah. Uh, strange, strange song, strange song. I'm not so sure it can get played on the radio that often now. Slight sort of Jamaican appropriation going on in there. And the first album I ever got, I got as a Christmas gift, and it was 1971, and it was Electric Warrior T-Rex. Very cool. Guy. Are we talking about pop music? Because if before Anything. pop music, you know, for Anything. me it would have been like Monster Mash, yeah, the single. And the first album I actually got was a Great War Movie Themes. The first singles I bought were Slade, but by Slade, I think it was Come oh, On Feel cool. the Noise. The, the speeches. Of Winston Churchill. Since <laughs> <laughs> we're all spilling, my first single was a band called The Electric Indian. It was an instrumental called Kimo Sabi. That was my first 45 I bought with my own dollar. Simpler times, eh? Uh, yes. First album I bought was Holland Oats, bigger than both of us with my own nice money. Story. Guy probably played yes. on it. Wow. <laughs> what was the first time you bought with first single you bought with someone else's money? <laughs> I never I, I, I just want to finish up by saying I never bought any Beatles records because uh, they've split up by the time I bought my first one. Yeah, I never bought any till much, much later. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Anytime you want to come on and talk about records and crazy stuff and all that, anytime. Thanks to Guy and Gary for being emergency guests here on a special edition of the podcast. And thanks to Christian Swain of Pantheon Podcast for producing that interview. Monday's release, we worked on it. We polished it, Marcus. The Bronze Age of Heavy Metal as we dig into the new wave of British Heavy Metal. I learned a lot getting ready for this episode and I listened Me too. and I listened to a lot of music from that era that I had not listened to other than maybe in passing here and there, but much more in depth. 
It was a lot of fun listening to like Venom and some of the other bands that were part of the uh, new wave of British heavy metal. Really a fun, fun research, and I look forward to learning some more about it. Out wherever you get your podcasts on Monday and on the Pantheon Podcast Network. That's going to do it for this edition of Bent News. Truly, when you need to know... Well, get bent, turkey. Yeah.